All episodes of Let the Music Play podcast can be found in both iTunes and at AshtonGustafson.com. If you have enjoyed these conversations and they have brought joy, peace, and resilience to your life, we ask that you would go to iTunes and leave a review. Our hope is to share these voices and conversations with as many people as we can. And by leaving a review, you will be helping this light make its way into the world. Jer Swigert is a thought leader who frequently teaches nationally and internationally in the areas of peacemaking and conflict transformation, faith and culture, enemy love, and collaborative leadership. He joins us today in this episode of Let the Music Play podcast as we talk about his up-and-coming book, Mending the Divides, Creative Love in a Conflicted World. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. Like the Jesus that I kept reading about in the scriptures is a Jesus who moved toward the pain, and whenever he showed up, broken things got fixed, and that's what I want to be a part of in the world. Hey guys, Ashton Gustafson here, and welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play. I'm thrilled to introduce to you guys uh, a new friend. I got a book in the mail um, not long ago. It's going to be coming out the end of September. Um, And the author, one of the authors, is joining us today, Jer Swigert. He's the co-founding director of Peacemaking uh, for this training organization called the Global Immersion Project. Now, um, I think you'll, you'll be able to tell very quickly this guy is one of us. He's leading a beautiful life. Uh, he is uh, putting light into the world. He's seeking to find places to heal in the world. And I just can't wait to get into this dialogue. So with that being said, Jer, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Really, really good to be with you. Yeah, man. So co-founding director of Peacemaking uh, for the training organization Global Immersion Project. That's that's like a lot of things put together. What to, when, when, when you begin and introduce yourself and the work you do in the world, um, where do you start? Yeah, I usually just start by saying I'm a follower of Jesus and a modern day peacemaker, you know, and um, I, uh, I grew up a a Midwestern, white evangelical, uh, middle class uh, Christian who I think was given a a picture of God who was, uh, who was militant and violent and was hyper fixated on our morality and um, and demanded a level of perfection. And, you know, we didn't do it enough. So he came here to show us what perfection looked like. And, uh, I I was given a God who I think, uh, demonstrated that his wrath was satisfied in Jesus on the cross and then kind of remains indifferent or aloof, uh, while we, uh, pursue a a moral existence and then hold on till we die. And, and it just didn't work for me. It Mm -hmm. just wasn't, it wasn't enough because it didn't, I, meanwhile, I was as a, as a young, globally trained leader who was being exposed more and more to issues of injustice in my neighborhood, in our country, and in our world, I just started asking questions like, like, how does my faith intersect with the pain in the world? And if it doesn't, is my faith worth anything? And so I just started to ask a whole bunch of questions, and I started to follow the teachings of other people. Slowly, I found myself in the middle of the fray into some really complicated and conflicted issues and, um, and, and found a better, more legitimate faith, one that, um, that's actually worth my life. And so um, that John, uh, the co-founder of Global Immersion and the co-author of Mending the Divides, had a, 
a, a similar story with some nuances to it, but I think some similar wrestlings. And we came together and and in a bus in the Middle East, we happened to meet each other there and just started to ask questions about peace and peacemaking. And are we born? Are we formed? And if you formed peacemakers, how would you do it? And that was really the genesis of the Global Immersion Project. Wow. Wow. Love it. And so I guess a little bit of your story, which probably mirrors mine and probably mirrors a bunch of us that are here, is, uh, is this idea of um, moving away from a faith that was just about beliefs uh, and moving into a faith that was about skin and bones, presence and practice in the world. Um, you want to talk talk through that shift before we get going kind of into this book? Like, how, how did how, how were you led to this place of like, hey, if this is just beliefs and things, this isn't working, but how do we move in to the world as peacemakers? Yeah, I remember when I was 19, uh, you know, I was, again, growing up Midwestern, I was, I was not a nominal Christian, you know, a, kind of a cultural Christian. And at the age of 19, I just found myself in the Gospels. I was actually on staff at a summer camp, a Bible camp, and, and I just kept narrating the story over and over and over again. And and I remember like three weeks in, I got to this place where I was like, gosh, tell me a better story than this. A, a God who would actually put on flesh and enter into the pain and into the brokenness uh, it, it, with with tools to restore. And like, tell me a better story than a God who would put on flesh and wear what I deserve so that I can flourish and then join that God in the work of restoration on the planet. And and like that it just started to creep inside of me. And so I remember, uh, I don't know if it was a reconversion or a, just a part of my ongoing conversion. I, I remember having this conversation with God where I told him everything I thought about him and, and what I had experienced in, in, you know, at the hands of people who claimed God or claimed Jesus and, um, and eventually ran out of things to say. And then I felt like I began to understand what God thought about me and it just completely undid me. And, and so my, my conversion moment there, uh, I, I remember saying to God, if, if this is worth my life, I'm in, which I think was uh, just a, a really arrogant um, and naive way of saying, I, this has to matter. Like, I'm not interested in, um, I'm not interested in a faith tradition where its end is, is intellectual morality and social satisfaction. Like the Jesus that I kept reading about in the scriptures is a Jesus who moved toward the pain. Yeah. And whenever he showed up, broken things got fixed. And that's what I want to be a part of in the world. Wow. Beautiful. Which leads us perfectly into um, mending the divides, creative love in a conflicted world. So you and John get together um, and start writing this book. You've been working on it for a couple years. Um, tell me what, like, what was the story up to this book? Why this book, and why now? Yeah. Well, the, the organization Global Immersion began just over six years ago. And, uh, and we really set out with this question, who are peacemakers and how are we trained? And realized that the training of Jesus-oriented peacemakers involves a theological renovation, but it all, also involves a capacity building, like practical tools to actually join God in the work. And so Mending the Divides is actually the fruit of about probably 12 years of our lives of just living this stuff out and experimenting with it, and then six years of honing it in, in our organization, and then two years of actually getting it between the covers of a book. And so um, the, the book itself is a, a story about a radically inclusive and pro-human God yeah. uh, who really, from the moment we picked the fruit in the garden— 
and Shattered Shalom has been 100% committed to the restoration of all things. And, um, and, and as John and I made our way through the scriptures in the early days of global immersion, we just discovered a God who was who was just so dialed into the pain and the brokenness and then kept coming in to restore ultimately, of course, in Jesus. And then, um, and, and then for us that, you know, we got to this cross moment where we had just been told that the cross was about our personal salvation, the restoration of like my soul in relationship with God. But like, we just kept recognizing there is so much more involved in the restorative activity of God. You know, you have the Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where, where Paul writes that, that all things were reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus, which means that like, not only is my soul restored, but so are interpersonal relationships. And so are, uh, our, our local systems that are breaking people. And so is international conflict. And so is creation and, th- and things like that. And, um, and, and so we recognize that the restoration that God accomplished in Jesus was decisive. It worked. Um, and it means that people who weren't going to make it are going to make it now. But we're also commissioned into that work. As followers of Jesus, uh, the, the power of the gospel is not just upon my yes to Jesus. The power of the gospel continues to transform us and fuel us into the points of pain in the world with the tools to restore. So literally central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus from our perspective is to join God in his work of restoration on the planet right here and right now. Uh, and so the, the message of the book is really designed to answer the question, how? How do we actively join God in the work of restoration on the planet? Love that. And, and I love how your faith story, um, which, you know, <clears throat> it's no one's fault. It just kind of is what it is. That, that There was this time where we were delivered uh, a way of believing in a faith that was all about winning. And like you get, you get this right in the book, right at the very beginning. And that's when I knew I was like, I love where these guys are heading with this, that yeah. um, it, it, it isn't this this battle in the sense of winners and losers. This is when you say all things, you mean all things, and you guys want to be a part of the restoration. What what was this shift like for you in a faith that was just seeking to win compared now to your faith that's seeking, you know, uh, uh, to to heal the world? Yeah, yeah. I you know, it was actually uh, I think it was more of a relief for um for us you know like when when we discovered that i I mean this the duality or the binaries of evil and good and you know like the the thought that god actually had to win something is um you know it was so ingrained it was like dark light versus dark and like there was a chance that God wouldn't win or, you know, it's just this interesting scare tactic that I think is introduced into, you know, uh, into our faith that, um, that keeps us on the defensive. It keeps us militaristic. It keeps us, um, championing revenge over reconciliation in the world and, and so on and so forth. And so when, when John and I started to discover this God who didn't have a bone to pick or a score to settle, but a God who was actually about, restoration because he so loved. Mm. Uh, I, I remember like there were moments where we just kind of went like, is this true? Like, mm-hmm. is this really true? Because that sounds like good news. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, and it's not, and it's not just good news for the two of us who are 
again, white middle class, you know, Christian leaders with evangelical roots. I mean, that's a a militaristic, angry God who's winning a theology that's constructed around that is really convenient for people who look like me. Right. Yeah, but then yeah. as as you begin to because it keeps me in a place of power, like it keeps yeah. me as the hero in all things. Right. And but when you begin to actually build relationships with people within the margins, you begin to recognize how our militaristic triumphalist, you know, kind of yay, rah, rah. Mm-hmm. God on our side thing, like it is devastating people who do not look like me. Yes. Um, and, and so we began to recognize that this that this God who was all about winning and therefore God's people who need to be about winning too, that's just not good news to way too many people. And, and so it was a relief to us to begin to recognize, wait, maybe we've gotten the story all mixed up with some of our patriotism and, you know, Americanness and whiteness and so on and so forth. And maybe there's something so much bigger and beautiful going on. Maybe, maybe the gospel actually is good news to a huge group of people, i.e. all of humanity, and we get to be a part of it. So good. I mean, I'm right there. I'm like high-fiving through the microphone. Um, you know, but also this idea um, that when when you talk about this new way of seeing your faith in the world, that this, this peacemaking, um, you write once that it isn't a reaction to conflict, but it's a way of life. Um, and, and you guys have, you have made a way of life out of peacemaking. You want to talk about the difference between using peacemaking as a way to react to conflict versus it just being a way of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we say over and over again when we're training uh, with churches or universities is we say peacemaking is not an add-on to your faith. This is this is not this is not a fad. You know, oftentimes churches, uh, you know, like I think twelve years ago, justice was kind of a kind of a fad, you know, it became the new thing that if we become about this, why then our churches will grow or whatever that is. And now peacemaking is kind of in that space where, yeah, we we really want to be about peacemaking. And John and I say, okay, but understand that this isn't a program. Like this is, this is a cultural reality. This is a description of who we are and are becoming. And by the way, this costs us everything because think about it. Like it never goes well for peacemakers. Right. 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 Because truly to peacemake in the way of Jesus means that it will literally cost us our lives. It will start with our resources and our reputations and so on and so forth. But ultimately, like we have uh, we have a God who in Jesus said, peacemake this way, lay down your life for the sake of others. Right. It's in the laying down of your lives that things come to life, that restoration actually occurs. So, yeah, peacemaking is not an, an add on to our faith. Rather, it's central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I mean, we just simply look at things like incarnation, where, uh, again, God shows up and enters into the pain. We have this God who is constantly moving toward um, what's dangerous, what's broken, what's unsafe, what's unjust. Uh, and God, every time God does that, God does it 100% committed to restoration and with the tools to restore. And so for us as, uh, as American Christians in particular, uh, you know, we have, there's an idolatry of safety. There's an idolatry of homogeneity. There's an idolatry of reputation and platform. All of these things actually hold us back from living this kind of life. Why? Because peacemaking is dangerous. Um, peacemaking will cost you your reputation and peacemaking actually requires that you move 
away from what feels safe and familiar toward that which feels different, Mm -hmm. unfamiliar, scary, whether that's groups of people or that's different issues or whatever that is. Um, And so in order to be a peacemaker in the way of Jesus means that we're actually going to have to compromise or rebel against all of the idols that we've established as American Christians or all of the rules that we've been told or have begun to embody that tell us this is how you do it. Wow. You know, so yeah, it's, it's absolutely a way of life and it, and the rubber meets the road in, in my home, you know, like I'm an everyday peacemaker first and foremost with my wife and, and, and with my kids and I'm an everyday peacemaker in neighborhood and in my city, but it starts here and it just begins to uh, kind of blossom out throughout all, all the spheres that I inhabit. That's right. And you, where you go in the book from this point, um, you, you start talking about the quote unquote, the other, um, and how proximity, nearness, um, uh, walking alongside. I, w- I wanted to read this because I wanted to nail this on the head. You guys write that the invitation is into a renewed understanding of faithfulness as a movement toward and alongside, emphasis, toward and alongside the other, rather than a posture of defense that leads to isolation and insulation. Um, walk with me through that. Uh, when, when you guys talk about peacemaking in the way of movement toward and alongside the other. Where are you taking us with those words? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, I mean, it really starts again with this concept of incarnation where we have a a, a God who's constantly moving toward. And um, so that's where it begins for us. You know, from, from that moment forward, I mean, we've been taught as you know, as white, white Christian leaders in particular, that, um, there's the ins, that, the outs, the rights, the wrongs, yeah, the ins and outs, rights and wrongs. These, there's these binaries, but we've also been taught that we have the monopoly on power and resource mm-hmm. and truth and solutions and things like that. And so, um, so as you'll read in our book, there are four practices and they're all moving toward verbs. So see, immerse, contend, and restore are these four practices of everyday peacemaking, which are different than I think what we've been told or, or taught in terms of how we show up in the world. And that is to notice, diagnose, solve, and then walk away. Hmm. Uh, so th- there are two very different frameworks for how we show up in the world. Again, see, immerse, contend, and restore, which is the everyday peacemaking framework, or notice, diagnose, solve, and walk away. The one really demands that we listen longer than feels comfortable. It means that we have to show up and sit in the back of the rooms with ears to hear what it is that's actually going on, that, that we're actually suggesting that in order to join God in the work of restoration, we first need to pay attention to what God is up to and, and whom God is up to that among. Um, we need, we actually need to position ourselves with them and listen to their understanding and their experiences. It, and then it's only once we've seen and immersed that we have any idea how to contend. And then when we contend, it's not a power over us continuing to live in this hero posture, but it, it, it the contending is always costly. It's always creative and it's always collaborative. We're joining, we're among, we're alongside of those who are, are locked into the pain. And then the great surprise is as we see, immerse, and contend, restoration begins to s- spring to life, and oftentimes it shocks us, mm-hmm. right? Let, let's juxtapose that from this notice, diagnose, solve, and walk away. We've actually been trained to, to, to solve problems, whether it's 
whether it's interpersonal conflict, it's, it, it's uh, local injustice, or even international conflict, by noticing that something is wrong, coming up with a quick diagnosis, and then offering premature solutions that actually are more damaging to those who are caught in the pain than helpful. Wow. And so, um, so when you put these two frameworks side by side, one actually demands that we sit among and find ourselves counted in the midst. The other keeps us aloof and distant saying, you know what, I'm not going to actually get any blood on my shoes. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to act this to actually cost me too much. I think I've actually got a track record of being accurate and then offering innovative solutions that actually, quote unquote, change people's lives or change the world or heal the pain. Well, it turns out that's not true. Right. And so absolutely the, the ultimate in. Um, and I think where um, where leaders like you and I need to need to lead the way right now is immersion into the pain and yep. sitting there with uh, with our, our probably with our mouths closed and with our ears open <laughs> listening for a long time. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you write that seeing really is the first peacemaking pro- practice that will produce compassion. Pr- compassion is the precursor to responsibility. And now you talk about immersion and immersion may just be we say nothing. Talk on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, well, first of all, when Jesus showed up in the neighborhood, he was here for 30 years before he did anything, you know, and <laughs> right if that's on. if that's true, then, you know, perhaps we take ourselves too seriously. And and, uh, and perhaps there's yes, there's urgency, but I think there's also some kind of superiority, you know, Superman mentality that's mm-hmm. like, yeah, we've got the solutions. We know what's up. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, and turns out I don't think that's true. Um, mm-hmm. I, we've got a, a good friend. His name's Nate, and he moved into the kind of the urban center of Oakland, and uh, he, and he opened up a mentoring uh, a mentoring school for um, for at risk young uh, young black kids in uh, in Oakland. And he had connections to get in, so it made sense for him to do this. And yet he realized that he had no credibility or no voice, and so uh, so he sat in the back of every neighborhood council meeting. Uh, every city council meeting, any meeting that was happening, Nate would show up as a as an alpha male, as a white alpha male, uh, and a social innovator. He would show up and he would sit in the back of the room and he would listen. Wow. Um, I was in a conversation with him not too long ago, and he he said that um, it was only just a few months ago that the council the councilmen and women from the neighborhood actually approached him and said, "Nate, you've been sitting in the back of the room listening for six years." It's time that you begin adding your voice. Wow. And, um, and in reflection on that, Nate said, you know, six years seems about right. You mm-hmm. know, it, to, to actually gain the kinds of credibility, especially if we're talking about systemic injustice, it, to, to gain the kinds of, of credibility to actually begin to lend your voice might take six years. And I don't know about you, but, I, but six years feels like forever. I'm yeah. used to showing up in a room and immediately feeling it with the sound of my voice and my ideas and my solutions. You know, Nate, Nate's leading the way. And so John down in San Diego and then myself in San Francisco for 13 years and, and now in Bend, Oregon for a couple of years, um, we just commit to finding ourselves in the back of the room and listening and, mm-hmm. um, and listening long and, and under, like letting that be a time of exposure of the parts of us that don't yet look like Jesus or exposing in us some of our assumptions and exposing in us in our, our, our ignorance. And then it gives us tools to begin to build relationships, to begin to work that stuff out. And then we find ourselves as collaborators toward, uh, toward restoration. Wow. So that's, I mean, I think that's a big aha for our listeners when, when they move into this idea of peacemaking, of seeing, and then moving into immersion that, 
once you move into immersion, you may have to listen to the story before you get a chance to speak on it or just before you get a chance to move into here's the resolution. Like that's right. It's just this idea that, um, you know, people want to be heard and seen. They want to be known before we bring in any type of resolution or like anything. That's right. That's right. And think about how this plays out interpersonally as well. Like if, if, like if I'm in, if I'm in conflict with my partner and, um, I, I, I just really need to be right. And I need my partner to understand how right I am and how brilliant I am and how it's, it, you know, it's her yeah. fault and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. What if we actually chose this practice of immersion in that moment and we sat with our partners and we listened longer than felt comfortable to them. We understood their perspective and how something landed with them. It's then that we can understand how to actually contend. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I mean, this plays out, uh, this plays out in from, from the microcosms of interpersonal relationships to the macro of international conflict. And, and you know, the, the, the huge thing here is how difficult it is for us to leave a world powered by winners and losers. Right. Like like there, the, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose the healing conversation. You know, we call it we're all hearing the term these days, the third way. Right. That that it's not this and that it, it's this it's this third way of being in the world. When, when you get into the integration, the healing, uh, the reconciliation conversations, um, you, you have to learn how to drop these dialogues of winners and losers, um, because I think it's just so hard when all we see is athletics around us, right? And that's all we know is a world of sports. Um, yep. This doesn't work here. Th- th- this, this, when you talk about healing, you cannot keep score. That's probably the best way I know to say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's well put, Ash. And I, I feel like the, like nobody wins unless we win. That's right. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that's, that's, it. That's, the, that's the truth about this, you know? And, and that's why peace is something that can't be negotiated because negotiations call for so many compromises where nobody really wins. Yep. You know, peace is actually working all the way through the pain to a place where our relationship is stronger and more beautiful than before it was broken. And in that space, guess what? We all win. Yeah. And, um, and one isn't the winner, one isn't the loser. That's, that's, right. that's an important distinction. Yeah. That's right. So um, what are other practical suggestions you might have uh, for people to, to move into this idea of immersion. I mean, I know it's one thing for you and I to sit here on a podcast and talk about it. Um, and I love this idea of just walk into the room and sit in the back row. Um, that's a beautiful place to start. In your journey, in the stories you've seen, in the roads you've walked, what are some other things uh, that maybe we could just uh, take as hints and direction of where to move into immersion? Yeah, I'm really grateful that you're honing in on on the practice of immerse, because as we train all around the country, immersion is the one that is the most challenging, right? It just, because it's inconvenient, it takes time, we're impatient, you know, I mean, all the things that we've already talked about. So I'm grateful that you're honing in there. Um, For for us, I I mean, I'm I'm thinking about, um, let's take something like the black-white race divide that is just so unbelievably prominent, and, um, and I'm grateful that the Band-Aid has been torn off, and we're seeing that, uh, that, that racism uh, didn't go away with Abraham Lincoln and Dr. King and so on and so forth. So here we are in, in our lifetime where we're, we're approaching another Selma-type moment where it's, it's our generation's turn to walk the bridge, you know? And, yeah. um, and, and so 
Um, I, I was in, in a dialogue with one of my dear friends and allies. Her name's Dee McIntosh. She's a pastor and activist in, uh, in Minneapolis. And um, she, I watched her in a, con- a training context. She was getting progressively frustrated with the white allies in the room because she felt like the white allies, their experience of immersion was, let's just go to our black friends and ask them about their experience of being black. And, um, and, and so I got curious with her about this and she said, here's the deal. Like, you don't understand that, that, uh, every time you ask a person of color, what their experience is of being a person of color, uh, you're inviting them to re-traumatize themselves over and over again. And, uh, and she's like, frankly, it's a terrible experience to be black in America. And so, um, so I, and so she was really pushing on this idea that immersion just simply takes, you know, requires us having a token person of color friend and then learning all about their experience of, uh, of blackness or, or being a migrant or a refugee or whatever from them. And so I said to her, um, okay, what is the kind of immersion that you think would be necessary before someone's actually ready to have a real conversation with you? And um, or before you would actually consider that person a potential ally who you could go uh, and stand on the front line shoulder to shoulder with her or him. And uh, and and she said she said, I need you to be able to draw a connection uh, between Emmett Till and Tamir Rice. Uh, until you can do that, you don't have a you don't have a voice. You're not ready. You know, and essentially Mm -hmm. what she was saying is do your homework. Uh, and, uh, and so for us, that's really continued to, I think, focus some of our thinking around this immersion practice where there is homework that we need to do in terms of getting our heads and hearts around these major issues of injustice that are exposed as very real and very painful in our country right now, you know? And so, uh, so D and I, and a couple of others went to work and we developed a a learning journey for white folk. And it's just, it lists out something like, who, who do you need to be listening to? Who do you need to be reading? What are the documentaries that you should be viewing? Um, who are the authors that have written the most important historical overlays of, of this issue and, and so on and so forth so that our white allies can actually take a journey and then come to the table um, with a little bit of knowledge uh, that, that backs their, their, um, their passion for peacemaking. And so, so immersion, yeah, it, it involves sitting in the back of the room and listening, but it also involves doing your homework. Like we have resources at our fingertips. Like my library right now is completely saturated with authors of color. That's a way that we can immerse into this story um, in a way that doesn't cost us a ton, but it, it begins us, uh, you know, along the way. That's I'd offer a third, uh, a third and, and final, we can, you know, you can look at more in the book itself, but, um, but I'm, I'm always impressed with how volunteerism creates the infrastructure for immersion. And when we're talking about immersion, we're not talking about doing for or serving another person. Immersion is always about relationship. Yeah. It's always yeah. about forging uncommon friendships. And so here in Bend, there's a, you know, we, we're a community of 100,000. We've got 12,000 migrants. And there's one organization that does incredible work specifically with our undocumented community. And so my wife and I, we're just simply volunteers, which gives us access into the epicenter of this community where all we're doing is building friendships. Yeah, the volunteerism happens and and that's all well and good. But what we're really doing is we want to build relationships. And it's in the midst of these relationships that now we're starting to hear the stories. We're beginning to hear the needs. We're beginning to hear the fears and the dreams and the aspirations and the obstacles and so on and so forth, where we now are, are not just thinking about this from a like a power space, like what can we do for them? It's what do we get to do together mm. now to address some of this stuff moving forward? That's and so, vo- like, think about 
um, think about opportunities uh, of volunteerism in your space and how it's not just a kind of a check off. I feel good about myself because I volunteer, but how is that in and of itself a practice of immersion? And would I mean, would you say that uh, as as nearness increases, as proximity increases to anyone or anything that may be different than, you know, whatever your proverbial resume is, um, you quickly start to find that there is way, way more alike than there is different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether, whether it's interfaith relationships, it's black, white relationships, it's even ecumenical relationships. I mean, the, the more the closer you get, the more you recognize that we are human, that there is dignity, that that we're image bearers of the creator, that we actually have more in common than we have different. And you begin to recognize how ludicrous it is um, that that we have chosen to leverage our differences to keep ourselves apart from one another. Mm. You know, and so when you think about what God did in Jesus you know, literally the text talks about the dividing walls crumbling. That's what happens in the immerse practice. That's what happens when we develop these relationships and really, I think, embody this, our common teaching of neighbor love. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So good. So, uh, the book comes out, when's the book come out? September 26th. Yeah. Book comes out September 26th. So it's, um, we're, we're right there. We're and, right there. We're and, ready to see this baby launch into the world. And tell me what's your hope. I mean, what, what do you hope people take away when they close that last page? Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, I want uh, I want individuals to read this. I want them to have found themselves in the book. And so John and I worked really hard to make sure that this that this book is illustrated in a way that we all find ourselves, you mm-hmm. know. And so, if we had written a book and illustrated it with these big, huge, grandiose uh, stories of professional humanitarians, that's not accessible. And um, we worked hard to make sure that as you read this book, you can understand yourself what it means to join God in the work of restoration. And so, so we don't want people just inspired. We want them equipped with a new set of tools. Um, and where that inspiration comes, we want them to be inspired to put them into play. And, uh, and I think that you'll, I think you'll have the opportunity to do that. Beautiful. So, um, man, love your energy, love your insight. Uh, super grateful for the work that you and John are putting into the world. Um, we, uh, we always bestow the title of you are one of us. Uh, and maybe we could just say we are one of you. We're trying to help this place tune up, be peacemakers in the world. Um, how can we send people your way? What's the best website, uh, to send them to? Yep. Yep. The best website is globalimmerse.org. Okay. Globalimmerse.org is our organizational website. I'm at jerswigert.com. And, uh, and, but the most important touch point right now is this book. You know, it's, it's the best of the best put between the covers of, uh, of a book that you can bring in, bring in with you. So go to Amazon and pick up Mending the Divides today. Do it, guys. Make sure you pre-order it. It's going to be a beautiful read. Um, Jer, once again, man, so grateful for you. And thank you so much for your time and energy. You got it. Thank you, Ashton. All right, brother. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jer. Make sure you go to Amazon, get you a copy of Mending the Divides. You can also find more information about what he's doing at globalimmerse.org and jerswigert.com. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebird sing, and be loved.